If you've been at the last couple of these Christianity Explored services, you'll know that we have departed from our normal order of service and not had a standalone Bible reading. And that's because I've encouraged everyone in the congregation to, to look at Bible passages that I will be drawing your attention to throughout our talk. The first one we're going to look at today is in Mark chapter 8. If you use the Bible in the pews there, it's on page 1012. Mark chapter 8 on page 1012. I'll come to that in just a moment. I recently picked up a biography of C.S. Lewis, and although it's a, a very substantial book, about 450 pages, I looked through the index and found that only three of those 450 pages made any mention of his death. And I think if you looked at other biographies, you'd find it's quite, quite similar. In a sense, the focus is on the life of the person, and, and their death is almost incidental in these accounts. If you look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the life of Jesus is the subject, you find something entirely different. You find that about a third of these four books is taken up with the events associated with the death of Jesus. In light of what we said about three weeks ago, where we talked about Jesus living an entirely amazing life, where he taught with great authority, where he healed people, where he did miracles in nature, where he raised people from the dead, where he claimed to forgive sins, in light of that, such a, a wonderful life, it seems strange then to, to put so much focus on his death. That's something we're going to think about today together, the death of Jesus Christ and why it's so central to the whole message of Christian faith. First place we're going to start is with Jesus himself. Most of us don't really get the chance to talk about our death in advance. And even if that chance was available to us, we, we don't like to go there. Jesus was very different. He did talk about his death. And even though he was a young man, he seemed to have a clear idea that he was going to die and how he was going to die. Look with me here at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He, that is Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man, and by that he meant himself, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Do you notice here Jesus uses the word must? He's not saying this is something that's going to happen. It's something that must happen. It's as though his death was necessary in some way. Flick over to chapter 10 and verse 45, please. Again, Jesus is talking about his death, but he goes on a little bit further and tells us why this death must happen. In verse 45, for even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death is somehow going to be a ransom for other people. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus isn't, isn't surprised by his death. He's not surprised by the fact of it, nor is he even surprised by the purpose of it. He knows that he's going to die and why it is, and it's to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In a sense, this follows on from what we learned a couple of weeks ago. We learned that we're rebels in danger of hell. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the lifeboat. He is the ransom. He, is, he has come to rescue us from that danger. To really understand Jesus' death, we're going to, to spend a bulk of our time this morning in a chapter which tells us about the death of Jesus, Mark chapter 15. So if you turn with me to Mark 15, in Mark's account, in the detail there, you, you actually discover three main things. You discover that God was angry, that Jesus was abandoned, and that we can be accepted. We're going to look at each of those things very quickly. First of all, God was angry. How do we know that? Well, to the people of Jesus' day, if it ever got dark during the daytime, the alarm bells went ringing. You knew that God was angry about something. Time and time again in the Bible, light represents God's presence with his people, and darkness represents God dealing with his people in, in some, some way in judgment. Think, for example, of the people in Egypt. Do you remember one of the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh, who wouldn't release his people from Egypt, was for darkness to fall on the land? Not darkness at night, but darkness throughout a number of days. Darkness in the Bible is, is a, a picture of the judgment of God. And now here in Mark chapter 15, look at verse 33. We read about an astonishing parallel event, if you like, with Jesus' death. While Jesus is on the cross, we read, at the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. for us. Here Mark is using the time system that Jews used to record the, their day, and he tells us that just at that point in the day when we'd expect the sun to be brightest, noon, the whole place goes dark. And it remains dark for three hours. Now, we, we know that this sort of thing isn't entirely impossible because we've seen solar eclipses and so on. Is that what this was? Was this just some run-of-the-mill solar eclipse? Well, I'm not, I'm not an expert in these things, but there are a couple of reasons I'm aware of that I've, I've read about why this couldn't have been a solar eclipse. The first one is... Jesus' death happened during the Passover festival, which is always a full moon in the Jewish calendar. And I've been told that you can't have a solar eclipse when the moon is full. So that's one reason why this, this doesn't appear to be an ordinary solar eclipse. The second reason is, and I think I can certainly testify to this one, whenever we hear of solar eclipses in the media, they're normally, we're normally told you've got a very small window of opportunity to see this. As far as I know, they tend to last at the longest about six minutes. There's a six-minute window of time which the, the sun can be interfered with in this way. Well, Mark is at pains to tell us that this lasted for three hours. Mark wants to be telling us here that something supernatural is happening, happening here, something that doesn't normally happen. And the message for, for those of us reading it is that God is angry about something. I want to talk about that just for a second. Maybe, maybe that, even that sentence is a little incongruous to us. God is angry. 
We're told that God is love, and anger certainly doesn't sound like something that a loving God would be involved in. Whenever we think about anger, we tend to think of it as, a, as an irrational thing, an unpredictable thing, a wild thing. And certainly that's how my anger is. Uh, whenever, I'm, whenever I'm angry, I'm generally at my worst. But God's anger is different than that. God's anger is a controlled and an unwavering hostility against everything that is evil and that is wrong. You see, it's easy, I think, nowadays to have a very laid-back approach to wrong and to evil. Let's think, for example, of drink driving, an issue that's been in our media again the past week. Whenever a person has a few drinks and drives home, it's very easy for us to say, you know, it's no big deal. As long as they know what their limit is and they're, they're being careful, th- that's okay. We, we can end up being quite permissive of, of something like drink driving. But take, for example, how we respond whenever a drink driver kills a friend or a member of our family. All of a sudden, our views on drink driving become very, very strong. We hate the idea of drink driving. We can't even, we can't understand why anyone would ever do it. And it's a bit like that with sin in general. Whenever it affects us personally, we begin to take it a lot more seriously. When we're the wronged party, all of a sudden we do care about sin. The thing that the the Bible would teach, friends, is that God is always the wronged party whenever there's sin. When people do wrong, even when they don't appear to do it directly to Him, even when they don't do it directly to another person, just when they do wrong, God is, is offended by that, and He takes that personally. And in a sense, He has every right to, because God made a perfect world A world where all of us would enjoy each other's company and his company and just perfect love and joy and peace. Whenever we act in a way that destroys that, God has every right to be angry. You see, it does matter to God when I lie, whenever I'm selfish in my marriage. Adultery matters to God and so does greed. The paramilitary murders of the last 35 years in Ulster matter to God, and one day he will take them in hand. There are a lot of things that matter to us, but one of our problems is that we can't always do much about it. Even our legal systems aren't aren't adequate to ensure that justice is always done. You see, there's no court in the world that can give the parents of Oma victims, their children back. There's no sentence that can can truly restore the innocence of a child who's been abused. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking along these lines, if God really existed, He'd do something about all of this. Well, friends, the answer that we we discover here in Mark's gospel is that God does exist and He has done something and He's done it here on the cross. Whenever Jesus 
was dying on the cross, God was acting in anger. And it was on the sin of the world. Whose sin is it that God is angry at? This is where it it gets to be surprising. Jesus, of all people, is the one who's on the cross, suffering and dying. That's our first point. God was angry. Our second point, Jesus was abandoned. I'm not sure how many of you had the chance to see Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. It was quite controversial when it it came out last Easter. It was controversial for quite a number of reasons, but one of the big issues that people referred back to time and time again, they said it was too explicit and too graphic in how it depicted the physical violence done against Jesus. Whatever we make of the film, there's no doubt that the physical violence done against Jesus and the agony that he suffered was immense. As you read Mark's gospel then, it's surprising that he doesn't really focus on this. Doesn't mention even once any sense of Jesus having physical pain. Because there's something even worse going on here for Jesus. And that's what Mark does draw our attention to. If you look with me in chapter 15, verse 34, Mark picks up on the spiritual agony of Jesus Christ. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the anguish of Jesus Christ. He's been abandoned by God. For the first time in all eternity, Jesus, who has enjoyed friendship and fellowship with God forever, is is cut off, is severed. His link with his Father is cut. Do you remember we talked about this uh, probably about five or six weeks ago? when we talked about how God is not alone, but God is a trinity. For all time past and all time future, God enjoys company, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not now. Not while Jesus is on the cross. For the only time in history, the Father and the Son are separated. Let's take a step back here for a moment. Why is Jesus the one on the cross? If God is angry against sin and wrongdoing, why is the only perfect man who ever lived there on the cross, why was Jesus being punished? When Jesus was on the cross, he was being punished for my sin and for yours. That's why he was on the cross. You see, all all sin must be judged because God is a perfect judge. Whenever we turn our backs on God, God does does something that, that might surprise you. God gives us a dignity that we don't even expect. God allows us to turn our backs on him. 
And eventually, when a person says often enough to God, leave me alone, there comes a point in time when God, with a broken heart, gives that person exactly what they wish for. He leaves them alone. And if a person dies still in that state, the Bible teaches that they will be alone and separated from God forever. They'll be kept distant from everything that God is and all the good that God would do to them. It's a place that the Bible calls hell, where we're utterly alone without hope and without comfort. That's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. Separation from God, and that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing God's punishment, but it wasn't his sin, it was ours that was causing that punishment to fall on Jesus. There's an extraordinary result to all of this. Jesus has paid the price for our sin so that we never have to. Jesus has paid the price for my sin so that I'll never have to. Friends, that's astonishing. God was angry. Jesus was abandoned. And thirdly, we can be accepted. In Mark chapter 37 and 38, he does something that's a bit strange. He records the moment of Jesus' death, but then turns his his attention immediately to something very different. It's like skillful film directors are very, very good at this. They can show parallel scenes, and as they cut from one to the other, they show you how the the two have a shared meaning. And that's what's happening here. Look at verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That's the one scene. And then he cuts to the other scene. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In an instant, Mark brings us from the hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus is on the cross into the temple on the other side of the city. And we see an incredible thing. There's a curtain there, 30 feet high, as thick as the palm of my hand, made out of one piece of material. And what we see and what we hear, we hear a a thundering ripping sound as this curtain is torn from top to bottom and lies in a heap on the floor. Very dramatic. What does that mean? Well, to understand what that means, we need to know what this curtain's all about. This curtain was a terrifying barrier to the Holy of Holies, the place in the temple where it was thought that above all, God, God resides, God lives. So that curtain, if you like, was a massive no-entry sign, a massive barred door, row after row after row of barbed wire that said, keep out. Sinful human beings are not allowed to come in to the presence of God. Jesus dies, and the curtain rips and falls. 
because the message of the death of Jesus Christ is that the separation of God from man is over. Anyone who wants may come into the presence of God, and they can do so through Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus died. That's the message of the cross. Friends, just for the last few minutes, I want to think about what we, what we can do in response to this or, or how we respond. Mark does a, a lovely and a very skillful thing in this chapter. He doesn't focus just on the death of Jesus, but he focuses on the reactions of people who are witnesses to Jesus' death. I'm going to very quickly point out a few of those to you. First reaction, the soldiers. The soldiers, you'll know your Easter story, they abused Jesus. They'd been abusing him for hours before they killed him. In Mark chapter 15, at verse 24, we see their response as they crucify him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. These soldiers don't care about who Jesus is. What they do care about is seeing what they can get out of this and just plain and simple, getting their job done. There are millions of people living in Britain today whose reaction to the death of Jesus Christ is much the same. They don't care who Jesus is or that he's died. All that they care about is doing their work going about their business, paying the mortgage. The daily activities of their lives keep them from understanding the significance of Jesus' death. That's the first reaction, the soldiers. You'll find a second reaction of the religious, the religious leaders. These are the guys who were convinced they already knew the way to God. They were already good enough. Look with me at how they mock Jesus in verse 31. They think Jesus is just a pathetic failure. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. I think I, I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. There's a massive irony here. Do you know who, who's always the greatest opponent of this message of the gospel? It's not the worst of people. It's not the sinners. It's the righteous. It's those who think they're good enough without God. Those who think they can stand before God in the judgment without the help of Jesus Christ. The religious. Mark records their response. They mocked Jesus as he died. And they certainly didn't respond to his death appropriately. There's a third reaction there in verse 36. Mark records the reaction of an individual in the crowd. This man wants to see if Elijah will come and rescue Jesus. Now, in, in the Jewish culture of the time, if a person was in trouble, Elijah was like a patron saint to those who were in trouble. So this guy, it's almost like a superstition. He's watching the death of Jesus Christ just to see if anything is going to show up, anything's going to happen. 
This man is totally detached from what's going on. And in a sense, I think he represents the people who are bystanders to this message of the gospel. People who, who are present, who see what's going on, who have heard this message time and time again, and who think that's enough. People who are willing just to, to see what's going on. People who, who maybe assume that because they have seen what's going on, they're going to benefit from the death of Jesus. I was there, they'll say. Or I've heard that message a hundred times. Truth of the matter is, none of us benefits from the death of Jesus Christ unless we accept him, unless we put our trust in him. What you see here is that Mark's showing us that everyone has a response to what happened on the cross. There's no neutral ground here. Every one of us has some response to this message. And there's one last reaction I want very quickly to point you to. It's the response of the Roman centurion. It's the culmination of everything that we've read so far. He's a battle-hardened Roman soldier. We know that he's a, a veteran. He's in charge of at least 100 men. This, this guy's fought in a lot of battles, and he's seen countless people die. But as he looks up at that cross, he recognizes that he's never seen anyone die like this before. Look at verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the Son of God. Friends, that is the final possibility. The final possibility is that everything that Jesus said and everything that we've talked about here this morning is true. And that's, that's the response that Jesus longs to see from all of those who hear this message of his death on the cross. Let me close. If we got the chance this morning somehow to take a, a look across the skyline of London, you'd see many things there, but, but one thing you'd see is the home of the British justice system, the Old Bailey. And you'd find standing on top of the building a, ma a magnificent golden statue of the goddess Justitia. In one hand, and you'll, you'll probably know the image I'm, I'm conjuring up for you here. In the one hand, she holds the scales of justice. On the other hand, she holds the sword of wrath. And in between, her, her eyes are blindfolded. And that blindfold she wears is a warning to us. The warning is that justice doesn't look at the individual Whenever a person has been found guilty, when the scales of justice have been tipped and shown them to be guilty, the sword of wrath will fall. Friends, if we, if we looked further over the, the London skyline, we'd see another golden image. On top of St. Paul's Cathedral, a, a large golden cross. And that cross is a reminder to us 
that while we have been found guilty, and while the sword of God's justice and His wrath must fall, that cross reminds us that it's already fallen on Jesus Christ. The punishment for my sin and for yours has already been taken care of. It leaves us, every one of us, gathered here this morning with a question. The question is just simply this. What are you going to do with your sin? Are you going to take it to the cross, to Jesus Christ who can forgive you? Or are you going to take it with you to the grave and one day stand on your own before God where his judgment will fall? Let's pray.